Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. He was born with a given name, George William. He was born into a carpenter's family in the Bronx, New York, in 1926. Growing up, he always felt that he was a girl trapped in a boy's body. But he knew that he was not homosexual. That was the term they used back then. He knew that he was not gay. After high school, he tried to join the army, but they wouldn't let him because of his size and weight. He was too slight a build and too short. But by 1945, the draft got him, and he served for two years into late 1946 as an army personnel specialist. And then after he left the army, he took some courses in photography, and he prepared for a career as a dental hygienist. But the feeling bothered him, continued to bother him deeply. He had heard that in Denmark they were experimenting. They had continued the experiments in what we would call sex change surgery back then. It has different terminology now, of course. And he went in 1950 to Copenhagen. And over the next two years, he began the process of gender transformation or having his body match his gender. He returned to the United States in 1952, a strikingly attractive blonde and a change of names. It wasn't George William anymore, it was Christine. Those of you who are my generation or a little older remember Christine Jorgensen. She made quite a sensation in America. Uh, The New York Daily News began it by the headline of its paper, XGI Becomes Blonde Beauty. And she then began to go on the circuit, the lecture circuit. She finished her sex reassignment surgery, which is another word for it. Some say a sex affirmation surgery. And then she became a, continued to be a celebrity the rest of her life, an entertainer, and a lecturer about her transgender uh, being and status. She was the first American to undergo this sex affirmation surgery. But she wasn't the first person. This had begun in the late 1920s, the early 1930s in Germany. And of course, transgender persons have a long, long history. You can go back two and a half millennia before the time of Christ, where Sumerian priests serving the Mesopotamian goddess Inanna. And about the time of Christ, actually for half a millennium, about a half a millennium before that, transgender female priests served in the temples of Sibyl in Turkey and Greece and Rome. Today, even, in India, the Hijras, and in Thailand, the Kathois form spiritual or social communities of transgender persons. In Indonesia, there is a third gender identity called the Waria. In Sulawesi, part of Indonesia, the Bugis recognize 
five genders, not just two. In Saudi Arabia and other Arabic countries in the Middle East, there are the Kanith that can trace their roots back to the seventh century after Christ. In North America, the Navajos have the Nadli'ihai, and the Zuni have the Ihimana. In the United States military, it's estimated that there may be 15,000 that identify themselves as transgender persons, 6,000 on active duty. So it brings us in our first sermon, first message in this series of cultural issues to the obvious question about gender and gender identity. Would you stand with me as we read today from the Word of God what he says about gender identity? Beginning in verse 26 of Genesis 1, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And may God bless the reading of his word. Let's be seated. The exposition of this text I'm going to keep very brief this morning. I'm going to use it as a foundation for the rest of the message, but the exposition is, I think, pretty succinct. It has to do with identity of humanity, the role of humanity, and the calling of humanity. Humanity being what we would understand as being men and women. The identity in this passage is very clear. God establishes a normative pattern for human identity. Every person, not just here, but around the globe, since creation and forever and ever until the end of this age, is made in God's image a new creative act of God. And this divine image is very clear. It is what we would call binary or binary. It is male and female. Every person is created according to that image of God. The role beyond identity, it's twofold. It's actually roles. They complement each other. One of those is to be leaders. God calls us to be leaders, to rule, and that is to exercise dominion over his creation. It also means that he calls us to be stewards. I think that's what it means when it says to subdue. We're caretakers, not to oppress from above, but subdue in the sense that we guide, we help to guide all of creation to accomplish God's purposes. So our identity is binary, male and female, in the image of God. Our role is as leaders to rule and then to, to steward his creation. Our calling then, and we have a calling, each one of us, in one way or another, is to replenish and to fill the earth. And in this context, that replenishing is to multiply, to multiply, to reproduce, and the means of which is procreation. The renewed act of creation by humanity, recreating 
giving birth, filling the earth, multiplying, and there is only one way to do that, and that is binarily. That is male and female in Congress together to produce new life. So what's the context of this passage? We will talk a little bit more about this next week when we talk about the issue of same-sex marriage, and it overlaps, but we see the context of this is also in, against the background of Genesis 2. And it tells how God made humanity. How did he do this? In verse number 7 of chapter 2, he breathed into the man that he fashioned from the earth and made him a living soul. That is a physical being into which was breathed, God breathed, the soul of life. And it wasn't that he was a body and a soul. It wasn't that he was a body and a spirit and a soul. It wasn't that he was a body and a spirit and, and a soul and a mind in, in compartments. No, it was that together he was a holistic being that was all of those things together, body, mind, soul, and spirit in unity. And then he formed woman. And verses 21 through 23, from man's own body, he then made woman. And of course, he said, this is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. And the purpose of the woman was twofold. It was to be a companion, to solve the problem of loneliness, and a helper, a helper to fulfill the calling of humanity, and that is to multiply and to fill, and then to fulfill the roles, that is to lead and to be caretakers together. And he united them in verse number 24 in what we would call marriage, the indissoluble one flesh union of binary male and female to fulfill their calling that's found in chapter 1, and that is to fill the earth. The context also must be seen against the background of Genesis 3, the fall. And of course, we know this, that, that humans, that is Adam and Eve, sin, and this disrupted God's cosmos. This disrupted his cosmic harmony and order of his creation. And it resulted in just the opposite, not cosmos, not harmony, but chaos, that is disharmony and disorder. And we know this, it corrupted not just humanity, but all creation. And it disturbed the binary order of things. It disturbed the binary order of, hum of human nature itself. There's genetic evidence of this in the Bible. What we're saying is there are people who are not born strictly binary. Evidence of this is when Genesis I mean, when Jesus says in Matthew, the 19th chapter, some are born what? Eunuchs. Some are made eunuchs by other men, and some make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God. And I take that to be eunuch, born eunuch, that they are born not binarily. Somewhere maybe we might describe in between. And what Jesus did not do there is he did not discriminate. He did not condemn that. He accepted this fact. He accepted the fact that after the fall, there was a disruption of that binary creative order. In the New Testament, Jesus goes on. This does not, the fall does not excuse, does not eliminate, does not cancel out God's original plan. Because when he was asked about divorce, how did he respond? He said, 
This is the way we were created, male and female. God still intends this to be the pattern, the main pattern for humanity, created and recreated in a binary fashion, male and female. And he went on to say, and marriage is the congress of those two binary sexes, male and female, the one flesh union that was spoken about in Genesis, the second chapter, is still God's plan. So when we talk about this issue of gender identity, and we have seen what the context of Scripture is, there's some terms that we need to lay out to begin with, and they're not just politically correct terms. I think they accurately describe the, the issue. One of those is sex. What is sex? In this context, it is male and female. A person is, by sex, either male or female, or perhaps somewhere in between. That has to do with the physical being. It has to do with the genetic organs, who we are physically. And then there is the issue of gender. Gender is whether a person is a man or a woman. Well, you might say that's male or female, but what people in this discussion really mean is, what is their self-perception of their core identity? Who are they behind that maleness and femaleness that is physical? So you've got sex, and then you've got gender, and then you have sexuality. And sexuality is the orientation. Sexuality has to do with the attraction. Sexuality has to do with the behavior. And that is when we will talk about later in one of these cultural issues about heterosexuality, homosexuality, bisexuality. So those terms are very important in the background. I would suggest that there are five assumptions that we need to approach this topic with which we approach this topic. The first is, I think, according to the Bible, we are holistic beings. We are created as a living soul, mind, body, soul, and spirit, holistic beings. Secondly, most persons walking the face of this earth today are still binary. That means most folks in the two-chromosomal kind of structure are either XX chromosome, female, or XY chromosome, male. So most people are binary. A third assumption is that most persons are what, and the term that is used in this discussion is cisgender. Cis means this side of. That is, their gender is on this side of their sex. It's on the same side. So they are male in their physical construct, and they are man in their gender. Or they are female in their physical construct, and they are woman in their gender. And most folks are cisgender. A fourth assumption is, and it's not an assumption, it's a fact, there are other alignments of sex and gender. That's just a fact of life. And the umbrella term that might be used for this, and, and it can be used inaccurately, is transgender. When we use it this way, what we're talking about, people that are not binary and people that consider themselves to be third gender, and those are two different things. Trans means the other side of. So they have the physical sex, but their gender is the other side, something else. And as a result of this, Many of those people suffer with what we call gender dysphoria. Not euphoria, but gender dysphoria. There is, for many of these people, a deep anguish, 
and despair due to the incongruity of their sex, physical nature, and their gender, their perception of their core identity. And there's a fifth assumption we would, we would make. First, we're holistic beings. Most people are binary, born that way. Most of us are cisgender. There are variations. But fifthly, this is a complicated issue. It's a very complicated issue. Remember what we said last week about simplicity and complexity. And what we're talking about today, I'm going to make some statements that are broad generalizations. If we had two hours or three hours, that still wouldn't be enough for us to unpack the complications. So as we listen to what the Word of God has to say about this, we need to be careful to know that it's a complicated issue. You know, years and years ago, people tried to reduce it to this. It's either a matter of nature or nurture. And one side said, well, you, you know, if a person is one way or another, it is because they were born that way. And the more conservative position would take this stand. No, no, they've been made that way by nurture, by social influences. It's not that easy, friends. It's just not that easy. It's a lot more complicated. I think there are four variations in the, 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 the depart from the binary form. So we've got the XXXY, which is binary, but there are other variations which exist out there. So we get into the complicated realm. First of all, physically, it's a medical issue. There are some people that are simply born intersexually. They have either both sexual organs or mixed sexual organs or incomplete sexual organs. Intersexuality. Uh, the estimates are, depending on uh, where one lives in the background, anywhere between 0.05% to 1.7% of the population that is born intersexually. That could mean in this globe of 8 billion people, 136 million people. Wow. Another medical issue has to do with chromosomal variants. Not everybody is born XX or XY. Doctors, medical experts, scientists have identified at least four other types. Some women are born with only one X chromosome. Some 2X, but they have a Y chromosome in addition. Some are born with two Y chromosomes and one X, and some have three X chromosomes and one Y chromosome. So it's complicated. And you don't know for sure about your chromosomal makeup until you have it tested. Statistics suggest that between 0.04 and 0.05% of females are born with only one X chromosome. That means out of 8 billion people, 2 million people, 2 million women. And 0.15% of males are born XXY, not just XY. That could be as many as 6 million people. So here's the point. There is disorder that has come after the fall and that has changed things medically, physically. There is a second variation, and that is mental. It's, it has to do with the psychi psychiatric uh, background. I'm not talking about being crazy. I'm just saying that this is a medical condition that has to do with the brain. There's pretty strong evidence that some people have a different brain wiring in utero before they're born, 
or perhaps even through adolescence, that the wiring of the brain, something goes wrong, and they do not have the same gender core identity as their sex. There is a mismatch. So that has to do with a psychiatric dimension. There's also the emotional type. That's a third variation. It's a psychological issue. Children, through no fault of their own, suffer childhood trauma. Their emotions are deeply affected so that their understanding of who they are does not match their sex identity. This can come through sexual abuse. It can come from a same-gender parent that distances the child and they don't have a good role model. It can come even from the other direction where parents use undue and wrongful parental pressure to push a child in one direction or another. This is emotional. And then there is a fourth variation. It's more philosophic. It's more political, frankly. And we, this is what we hear about in the news. This is what has pushed the issue to the forefront. It's a recent shift from the medical the psychiatric, the emotional model, to one that is a, a political and a social frame of reference. And part of this is because of postmodern deconstructionism about which we have spoken many times. That is, people who challenge the binary norms and they simply welcome and promote diversity. There's pressure upon young, young people in our schools today to examine their gender at way too early a date and whether or not they're going to conform to social norms that are being reconstructed. There's this idea that it's gender is socially constructed and society oppresses people to fit a pattern. For these people, there is a term which is popularly used. It is a kind of emerging gender identity. And they use terms that when, when I was a boy, you didn't use. And you know what I'm talking about. People who consider themselves to be queer non-binary, genderqueer, pangender, polygender. What they're really saying here is there is, for some people, a gender identity that comes out of a social, philosophic background where they consider themselves to be gender fluid. So what are the implications of this? First of all, I think the persons in the first three categories that I described, that is the medical, the psychiatric, and the, so and the psychological, the, a lot of times they are diagnosed as having a what? A disorder, some kind of disorder that does not fit the norm. And most of those folks suffer greatly what we call gender dysphoria. This is something of which we need to be aware. Almost all non-binary persons experience some form of distress, whatever the cause, especially transgender persons. 57% of them, according to recent survey, their family members don't even talk to them. Over 50% experience some kind of harassment at school. 60% have at one time or another had health care refused them by doctors. Almost 70% claim that at some point or another when they have had interaction with the law, they have been discriminated by law, against by law enforcement officials. Almost 70% of them have experienced some kind of homelessness at some time in their life. Non-binary persons are more susceptible to suicide attempts. In the LGB community, the lesbian, gay, bisexual community, non-binary in background, their suicide attempts are four times the national average. 
Transgender persons, a broader category, 10 times the national average. And if one is a person of color and transgender, it's an alarming 12 times the national average. They suffer great distress. For the emerging gender kinds of persons, the gender fluid, third gender people, they say this, how I am, my gender is not a disorder. Don't call it that. I don't feel badly about it. I don't need to be healed of this. But they still suffer distress. And they feel as though they are being oppressed. And many of them undergo therapy. So I want to give three responses to this issue. That's the background. One response, and these are all by people who say that they're Christians. And, and I believe when they say that they're Christians, when they say that they have a living relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And they all look at the Bible and they interpret things differently. One of those is what I would call the moral authority submission model. And if you go Google that, you're not going to find it because that's just my way of describing it. But the moral authority submission model, what they say is this. Genesis 1 and 2 are, are or is, whether you treat it as a unit or two chapters, God's permanent norm for human identity. That is, binary sex, physical, male and female, and the gender lines up with that, a unified gender identity. It emphasizes from the Old Testament, draws strongly from the Old Testament, from the moral codes of separation. You see, there's a sharp distinction in the Old Testament and in God's plan. And it manifests itself in a sharp distinction between appearance and behavior and, of course, sexual activity. And it stresses this. If one submits to God, one must maintain this separation. And separation, frankly, from worldly standards. So that emphasis on separation is very important. They also see this reinforced by their interpretation of Paul's teachings. That wives come under their husband's authority. That we are to present ourselves as men and women. That is, the gender. One sex, the other, then man and woman. And we should present ourselves this way. And we should maintain that distinct difference. Not capitulate to an androgynous sameness in society that blurs the distinctions. And it goes on to say this. Not only does the sex and does the gender, not only do they line up, but also the roles that we fulfill. Gender roles line up with one's sex, physical, and their gender identity. And this is God's order for males and females, for men and women. They are male and men roles, and they are female and women roles that are clearly distinct. They reject, to reject one's God-given body, to reject one's physical body and say, no, I'm something else, is sinful rebellion. It's expressive individualism. It is an exercise of personal lordship that refuses to submit to the Lord's plan. They do admit that there is intersexuality. There is gender dysphoria. There, there are people that are born with physically different bodies than strictly male and female. But this was caused by the fall and its effect on genetics. And it's a medical problem. And the solution is very simple. If a person is born with 
both sexual organs, for example, or maybe incomplete sexual organs. Then you look at the chromosomal makeup, and if there is a Y chromosome evident there, then we must treat the person as a male. You see, there are medical solutions, and they may even be in most extreme situations need for some kind of medical surgery, but that's rare. This position, the moral authority submission model, says that marriage is foundational to God's order. And we will talk about this next week more. Marriage, you see, is the meta-narrative of the Bible. The Bible begins with it and it ends with it. You see, the marriage meta-narrative basically explains God's entire plan based on a binary model that is ordained by him. The first marriage was cursed by the fall. But the gospel comes along and it overcomes the effects of the fall. And we see in marriage today in Christ, you see, the husband becomes the self-sacrificing head of his wife. And on the other hand, Ephesians 5, the wife becomes the church-like blessing to her husband and submits to him. And the church is the bride of Christ and submits to him as Lord. And someday that's going to be consummated in the great marriage in heaven where the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, will be married to the Lamb of God. There is gender dysphoria beyond intersexuality, this position would say. In other words, those other three categories that we were talking about. But this is caused by sin. It's the fall's effect on the non-physical. It goes beyond whether a person is born male or female. It affects the mind and the soul and the spirit. And they would say that most binary persons fit into this category and they are the way they are because of sin. And it manifests itself in a, mor in a moral problem. It's a product of nurture, not nature. It's because people choose to rebel and disobey God's order and it man manifests itself in such things as cross-dressing, sinful dressing and behavior. And this is a rejection of one's God-given body. Now we know this that most young people, as they enter adolescence, go through adolescence, that's when then their gender identity really is solidified. And people have questions, especially in adolescence, about that. But this position would say that about 80% of people normally grow out of that. The solution to this problem, according to the first position, is parental, pastoral, spiritual, ecclesial, and social. In other words, parents should discourage gender-altering behaviors. Pastors should give soul care, but at the same time give moral guidance about the sinfulness of these activities. It's spiritual. The answer is spiritual because it involves repenting of our dishonoring the Lord by rejecting one's God-given body. It's ecclesial. That is, it's a church matter because the church should encourage persons through the process of healing and restoration then to identify with their God-given body. And it's also social. The church should, in society, oppose the acceptance of an LGBT agenda that tries to make it normative. And then finally, there's transformation. In this position, transformation comes through conversion and a person becomes a new creature in Christ. They shed their old nature. They embrace their God-given binary identity. And it's not necessarily instantaneous. Sometimes it's a long struggle. So 
this first position, the moral authority submission model. There are some issues with it, as there will be with the other two that I mentioned. One is, if it is pushed, and I stress this, if it is pushed to an extreme, it can become moralistic. And what I mean by that, it can become very judgmental and legalistic. If it's pushed to an extreme, it can be dispassionate with more emphasis on rules than people. It can become authoritarian. The people who advocate it sometimes try to exercise power over other people inappropriately. It can be majoritarian. And what I mean by that is because of one's fear of diversity, they will use the slippery slope argument and demand absolute uniformity of everybody for the sake of society. And then I think one of the other possible shortcomings of pushing it too far is this. They identify one's core identity with their sex. Your core identity is that you are a male and a man or you're a female and a woman. And you must fulfill those roles or you're sinning against God. I would ask this question. Is our core identity in our sex? The second position is what I would call continuum diversity model. Genesis 1 through 3 in this model, God created Adam and Eve binarily, yes, but it was only to start the human race. It was done so that they could parent and they could begin the process, but it's not a permanent pattern. You see, this is very opposite from the first position. You see, this binary pattern, they would say, was not the best pattern. It was just the beginning. And it's not the exclusive model today according to God's intention in Scripture. It's just a statistical majority. In this, in this model, they would say that the binary pattern is not intended by God to be normative or permanent. In other words, sex and gender are to exist in a continuum. This was intended by God. And the disruption of the binary pattern is not a disorder. And it was not caused by the fall. In other words, when God created us, he intended all of this to happen. You see, God's plan is to promote diversity. Not black and white, but many shades of color in between, gradually revealing the ever-varying beauty of the cosmos. Sex differences are not abnormalities, but curiosities to be explored and celebrated. They, if we reject this diversity, in other words, what we're doing is we're going against God's plan and the Creator's imagination. His purpose in creating woman was not separation, that is, between man and woman, but it was companionship to cure loneliness. God's image, the Imago Dei itself, is diverse. We have the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God's nature is not gender-specific. There are places in the Bible where his activity and his personhood are identified with a kind of feminine identity and feminine actions. The biblical support for this position in the Old Testament, they would say, it is not normative in the Old Testament, this emphasis on separation. God did not plan for that to be permanent. Israel was separated be separate, dress this way, behave this way, but that was not to be permanent. You see, the New Testament goes the other direction. It emphasizes inclusion. Jesus' universal proclamation in the temple, this is my house, and my house will be called a house of prayer for what? For all peoples, inclusively. 
In heaven, they would point to the fact that the great multitude in Revelation 7 is made up of all kinds of people. Marriage is not the great biblical meta-narrative. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 discourages people from being, getting married unless it is absolutely necessary. The emphasis on eunuchs is very predominant in this, in this pattern. You see, the Old Testament excluded them from the assembly of Israel in Deuteronomy 23. But even Isaiah, before the end of the Old Covenant, then said and prophesied that eunuchs, that is, not male, not female, would be accepted into the body. Jesus accepts this in Matthew, the 19th chapter, when he says, some are born eunuchs, they would say. And look at the Ethiopian eunuch. He is embraced fully into the body without any question. They would emphasize this. In Christ, there is no distinction of sexes. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For we're all one in Christ. You see, the ultimate goal isn't to be man, woman, male, female, but it's to be transformed in the image of Christ, and that's what God predestined us for in Romans 8. We are being transformed from glory to glory in 2 Corinthians, the third chapter. What matters more, they would ask, is this. Does it matter more what our sex and gender identity is or our identity in Christ's image? And they make historical arguments. Early Christians did not view their gender as essential to their identity in Christ. In fact, some made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom. A good example would be Origen in Alexandria. And others took vows of chastity, priests and monks and nuns, and continued to do so. They would make rational and exper experiential arguments. There's a natural order that blends. Look at the sunrise, the sunset. It doesn't go from light to dark immediately, but there are shades of what? Shades of gray in between. The liminal boundaries between the ocean and the shore, there is a blend that occurs there. There are many examples in nature, not of just hybrids, but of binary, non-binary plants and animals. They would argue from the standpoint of freedom and justice and, companion, uh, uh, and uh, compassion, that we are free in Christ, and we must be free indeed. We should defend those that are marginalized, Matthew 25, and minister to them, those that are on the margins. And they would argue from the standpoint that they're sincere Christians that serve God in a non-binary, transgender mode. Many of them see this as a vocation, a calling of God to experience the world in an unusual and different way, but through a holy lens and it's a holy pilgrimage to walk in between, you see, the binary polar opposites. They would not see their condition as being pathological or psychologically disordered. Problems with this model. I should think that one of them is very obvious. The presuppositions are not biblical. They are derived from what I would consider to be an unsound biblical interpretation. The popular term for it today is reader response hermeneutic. The Bible is what I want the Bible to say because that's where I am. It's philosophically rooted in postmodern deconstruction. The oppression of society must be ridded. It is a philosophic and a social solution. Some who support these arguments are also driven, not by love, but by fear and anger at being marginalized. They argue from existential, from self-reasons of personal passion. 
and they have strong emotions that seek a rational and biblical foundation by proof texting. It emphasizes individualism almost to the point of a cult and freedom which the Bible does not teach in this way to be free, and it's at the expense of godly submission and obedience. Position number two. There is a third position, and it's what I would call the healing compassion model. It's very close to the first position, but not identical. But it also has some similarities to the second model. First of all, Genesis 1 and 2, clearly God's pattern in Genesis 1 and 2 is a permanent pattern. Binary sex identity, male-female, and a unity with the gender and a holistic being. Genesis 3, it emphasizes the fall. Yes, the fall is responsible for diagnosable disorders today. It rejects most of the continuum model that I just spoke about, but it still values diversity. It rejects that continuum model, but it values freedom and nonconformity as long as those fit within God's plan. It rejects the continuum model, but it does continue to defend the marginalized in Matthew 25. And it certainly embraces the idea of being transformed into the image of Christ. The thing is, that is going to be the end result. It's not going to be finished here. And in fact, Jesus Christ himself has ascended in bodily form, and he did not change his gender, his identity, and he continues to be that way today. It is similar to the moral authoritarian authority model of uh, submission as well. But there's some exceptions. This position does not lean on Old Testament codes of separation to substantiate it. It does not emphasize gender roles. Yes, generally women behave one way and do certain things generally, and men the other, but it does not emphasize a unity absolutely of sex, gender, and role in a binary way all the way down in every aspect. It does not focus on the sinful disobedience. It admits that there's sin behind it, but it doesn't focus on that. And it says that marriage is not the meta-narrative of Scripture. Redemption is. Redemption, and not just redemption of men and women, male and female, but redemption of all creation. In other words, this is a matter that goes beyond marriage, as fundamental as marriage is, and we'll talk about it next week, Marriage is not the meta-narrative, it is redemption. It focuses on relationships rather than focusing on rules and submission on the one hand, freedom and diversity on the other. It focuses on the key thing is a relationship with God. Restoring our relationship with God, and of course, both of these other models would say that we want that, that to be restored, but it focuses on that. And it also focuses on relationships in this way. We need to build relationships with others. We need to build relationships with those who feel alienated by God because of gender dysphoria. It still maintains God's moral standards, that is, binary sex identity as God's foundation for society that defines what is morally permissible sexual behavior, which we'll talk about next week. It still emphasizes the need for pastoral guidance. We should guide our children. We should teach in our churches that our gender 
should line up with our sex, and we encourage people to think in those terms. But the primary focus is on holistic healing, not just physical healing, not just emotional healing, not just psychological healing, but also spiritual healing. It does include all of those other things, but it emphasizes spiritual healing, which is a process. You see, it's about restoring our personal relationship with God and a willingness to walk alongside people who suffer gender dysphoria, who are suffering, that need our encouragement. This spiritual healing, friends, is a tough and dialogical and vulnerable process. As a church together and individually, most of you probably know somebody who is in that non-binary world, and they're, they're struggling. And if we're going to walk with them, it involves this. It involves our being vulnerable to them. It, be, it means being willing to listen to hard questions and not give trite answers that, that, that don't address the issue. It means that we need to discuss some things in theodicy. Why, if God is good, omnipotent, omniscient, why do these bad things, why does evil exist? It involves pastoral care, not just of myself, but of you with others that is not contingent on a person's absolute commitment to change. If a person's suffering, sometimes we say, okay, well, if you're willing to change, then I'll talk to you. But if you're not, I won't. It means that the congregation must be willing to accept persons as they are and help them work in the journey of spiritual restoration. And it focuses on compassion not judgment. There's some problems with this position. Number one, it doesn't often speak as boldly and as urgently in proclaiming the truth as it should. Sometimes we shy away from that, taking this position if we do. Sometimes this position doesn't put enough emphasis on the problem of sin and immorality and how this affects one's self-identity. And sometimes it's non-confrontational. It just lets society move on, and sometimes it's in danger of conforming to those societal norms. So, where would you fit in these three patterns? I'll let you think about that. You probably know where I fit. Let me make some application here very quickly. I think whatever we do, number one, we must pray earnestly for people who are suffering what is called gender dysphoria. Pray for what first? For their salvation and their relationship with God and their spiritual healing. I think a second thing, friends, that we need to do, if you know someone like this, sometimes we're fearful. We don't know what to say. You know what I'm talking about? It's not, it's not a fear of the person, but it's a fear that we might say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. It's a fear of the unknown. Remember this, folks. We need to engage with those people, and we need to show love. And what does 1 John say? What casts out fear? Perfect love. If we come with a motive of love, it casts out that fear. I think the next thing is we need to walk alongside them patiently. We need to be willing to embrace them. How can we minister to people when we keep them at an arm's length? That doesn't mean that we endorse their lifestyle. It doesn't mean that we support their political or social agenda if they have one, but it does mean that we walk alongside them and we listen carefully and we talk sincerely 
and not intrusively to them. You know, sometimes we feel like we've got to give them the one-liner, the zinger that's going to convert them, and usually those do not work. We need to recognize that one size does not fit all, (laughs) especially if you've got six chromosomal makeups. We need to treat persons as individuals, not as a prototype. You know, the question comes up, well, you know, what's going to happen if a person who is gay or a gay couple or a transgender comes into the church and they want to be a member? I I, I get it, folks. I know. But one of the problems is if we just have a paradigm in our mind and we treat people as a paradigm and not as people. Jesus never did that. We need to treat them as individuals without compromising the biblical standards. We should never be presumptuous that their condition is a result of sin. A person that is born medically with a, you know, uh, intersexuality, yes, it's a result of the fall, but maybe not personal sin. We need not to condescend and be judgmental. We need to be humble. We are all sinners. And we say that, but folks, let's face it. Sometimes we look at other people and their sin and we think, well, boy, that's a lot worse than mine. You know what I'm talking about. We cannot do that. That is judgmental. We need to show respect, and Jesus put it very simply, do unto others as you would have them what? Do unto you. We need to show compassion and not just feel it. We need to stand for justice for those that are oppressed. There is no excuse for discrimination against those that are suffering gender dysphoria. At the same time, we must stand for biblical norms. We must teach them at home. We must teach them in this congregation, and we must stand firmly on what God's pattern is established, not just in Genesis, but in the new covenant. We need to be careful to protect the body of Christ. We need to be careful to protect the church from any kind of false teaching. We need to stand firmly in this society, take a stand against political and social agendas that undermine these norms in society. Some of what I have said this morning will be taken by some as hate speech. Some will say that it's insensitive, but we must speak the truth. We must, we must oppose the movement in our society today that wants to make non-binary the norm, and you know what I'm talking about. And finally, be not discouraged. Let not your hearts worry, whoever you may be. If you're watching today and you are maybe one of these people that we have described that does not agree with the binary plan and scripture, or if you are one who is a believer who subscribes to whoever you are, be not fearful, be not discouraged. The good news is described by some as hate speech. It is not, friends. It's just the opposite. It's speaking the truth in what? In love. So if you're listening today, and you think that I hate you because you're not like I am, I hope, I hope that you understand that that's not my intention. But we must speak the truth. We must speak the truth in love. 
Don't be discouraged. If you're listening today and you feel increased distress because of the message that you have heard, and you feel like it is oppressive, give some thought to this. It may not be oppressive. It may not, it may not be bad distress. It may be the good kind of distress. It may be the conviction of the Holy Spirit to come to the truth of God. And finally, friends, never give up. Don't be discouraged. If you have a friend or a family member, a brother or a sister, a son or a daughter, and they are struggling with this, never give up. Never. Never. What did Churchill say? Never, 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 never give up. Keep on what? Wear your knees out. Pray. And pray that the truth of God's love will come into their heart. And they will then be spiritually healed. Consecrate me now to thy service, Lord. By the power of grace divine, let my soul look up with steadfast hope. And my will be lost in thine. Never ever give up. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gamble Street Baptist Church has six church goals reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.